so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome to the ERLC Podcast. This week, we'll hear a message from Robbie Gallaty. No one before and after Jesus ever went after a student and called them when they weren't looking for him. Jesus breaks the mold, if you will, and he goes out and finds people who may not even know the potential of what they can do to engage the culture, and he calls them to a personal relationship with him. Aren't you glad he did that with you? (laughs) I don't know about you. You know my testimony. I wasn't looking for Jesus when he came looking for me, and neither were you probably, right? Neither were you. Trying to navigate our way through this ever-changing and challenging culture that we live in can be difficult. At the ERLC National Conference, Robbie Gallaty gave a message titled, Making Disciples Who Engage Culture. He says that a reformation of the 21st century is dependent upon the return of discipleship. Let's join Robbie now. I want to speak to you tonight about a message that I think is important for us to hear because of the unprecedented time that we're in. Uh, And the title of the message is, We Need Disciple-Making Measures in Desperate Times. Or another way to say it is, Desperate Times Call for Disciple-Making Measures. Uh, I want to take us back on a journey as we begin, because a lot of people today are saying that the world is not as bad as it's ever been now as it has been in the past. And and I beg to disagree. So I want to take you on a journey back 2,000 years, and I want to talk about the time period leading up to the coming of Jesus Christ, that intertestamental period from Malachi, the writing of Malachi, 400 BC, until the coming of the prophetic voice of Gabriel to John the Baptist's father. And I want to show you the tumultuous time that was, that was there at the time of the coming of Jesus Christ. Uh, I want to take you back to Alexander the Great. Uh, if you know anything about Alexander the Great, he was the greatest military genius. In 332 BC, he comes into Judea and he takes over that region. And he has an interesting way to implement his power. Unlike the Romans who decided to do it by force, take, making people bow down to the emperor or the empire, he does it subtly. What he says is you can have a buffet style of options to choose from. So he implements this system called Hellenism, uh, this idea of the theater. Uh, He implements athletics for the very first time. He implements an educational system. He starts talking about media and things that are happening around the world. And it's so subtle by the time the people realize that it's too late. 
want to fast forward a couple years to a man named Antiochus IV. He was a corrupt leader that was over the entire region of Judea. Uh, He was so corrupt that when he took office, he said, no longer can you follow the past practices and customs that you're used to. In fact, on December 6, 167 BC, he does the unthinkable. I don't know if you've ever heard this. But he causes the Jewish people to not only sacrifice pigs on the altar of Israel, he forces them to eat pig, and then he erects a statue of Zeus in the temple. This leads, if you know your history, to the Maccabean revolt, and they, by God's grace, take back the temple during that time. But they didn't come out of that unscathed, because at that point, the priesthood of Israel was corrupt. And from that point on, 172, roughly B.C., the first corrupt priest takes office. His name is Jason, if you know anything about Jason. And the priesthood is not no longer inherited through genealogy. The priesthood is bought. And so they would go to Antiochus. Now, he was a very humble man, if you know anything about him. His name, uh, he named himself God Manifested, or Epiphanes for short. A very humble man. That's a joke, by the way. Uh, And so he was a man who wanted power and prestige, and he needed money in order to pay Rome off for the tariffs that they imposed upon him. And so what happened is from Jason, 172 BC, all the way until the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, the priesthood was bought. I want to just put it in perspective. Let me frame this for you. In 1,388 years, From Aaron all the way to Onias, 1,388 years, roughly 1,560 to 172 B.C., there were 43 high priests, write that down, 43 high priests, 1,388 years. From 172 to 70, roughly 242 years, there was a whopping 38 high priests. Now think about that. 1,388 years, almost 1,400 years, there were 40 two high priests, 43 high priests. In roughly 250 years, there were 38 high priests. What's the point? You see the level of corruption. You see the level of immorality. You see the level of manipulation. In addition to that, you have Herod controlling with his sons, the the empire at that time, and then you have Pontius Pilate, who was uh, a character, to say the least, in and of himself. America, as you can imagine back then, is very similar. You and I live in a day and age today where the government has rewritten 4,500 years of biblical tradition and 2,000 years of Christian history to rewrite what a marriage is, right? We live in a day and age where that same government is forcing taxpayers to purchase the funding of recycled body parts after abortions. It's the day and age we live. We live in a day and age where people are confused as to the gender of their birth. The schools that our kids are going to today are are being taught, these children of ours are being taught doctrines and ideologies about gender identity and abortion and evolution uh, and a host of other things meant to confuse and to corrupt. We live in a day and age where we are allowing countries like Iran to build nuclear weapons, not only aimed at us, but against Israel. And little do they know in Washington, That Israel is the time clock to the end. We know that, but they don't know that. And so I I, I want you to understand the perilous times we're in today. I read a book recently uh, by a guy named John Dickerson. Uh, You may have read it. It's called The Great Evangelical Recession. Six factors that will crash the American church and how 
to prepare. He doesn't say how to avoid it because he said it's, it's uh, irrevocable, but how to prepare. And here's what he says in that book. It's very hard to read, to be honest with you. The first ch- six chapters are very tough. Notice what he says. I quote, the decline of evangelical Christianity is not just that we're failing at evangelism or just that we're failing to keep our own kids in church or just that we will lose 70% of our funding over the next 30 years. It's all these factors and more combined and gaining speed simultaneously. Now, if you can wade through the first six chapters where he basically explains this dilemma we're in, he spends the next six chapters giving solutions to the problems. And would you believe in a resounding manner, he repeatedly says, there is only one way to avoid this. There's only one way to fix it. Guess what he says? Discipleship. He said, that's the only way out. And that's why I want to make to you a very bold statement today. I know it's bold, but I believe it with all of my heart. Don't miss this. I believe the reformation of the 21st century will be enacted, could be enacted, with a return to discipleship. Now, this is not a new concept, as you know. In fact, it's as old as the Old Testament. Did you know it was the very first idea Jesus implanted in the hearts and minds of the disciples? I want to show it to you. If you have your Bibles, uh, you can turn with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1, and I want to show you the strategy that Jesus gives to the world walking into space and time, very similar to today, only amplified at another level back then. Jesus gives them a strategy to change the world. He gives them a strategy to engage the culture. It's the same strategy that'll work today. Notice what he says, verse 14. If you're there, say word. We get excited about studying the word. Why? Because the word changes our lives. Amen? And so we get in the word to the word gets into us. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel. There is so much there to unpack. I'll say one thing about it. Notice the message of the gospel. That's our message. Repentance and belief. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Repentance is turning from our sin. Faith is entering into the threshold of a relationship with God in the kingdom of heaven. I've been doing a lot of research on this, don't have time to tell you, but would you believe that the kingdom of God for Jesus Christ, 90% of the time, was not some future place we rate to go to after death? 90% of the time, Jesus is talking about a power today. Don't have time to talk about that, but just think about it. 90% of the time in the New Testament. Then Jesus goes on and he gives us a strategy. Look at verse 16. As he was passing along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and Andrew, Simon's brother. They were casting a net into the sea since they were fishermen. Follow me, Jesus told them, and I will make you fish for people. Immediately they left their homes, nets, and followed him. Going on a little farther, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and his brother John. They were in the boat mending their nets. Immediately he called them and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Now notice the the messengers of the gospel. So we see the message of the gospel. The messengers of the gospel are fishermen. And I don't think it's any accident that Jesus chose blue collar, hardworking fishermen. He chose men who understood what it's like to fish. Don't have time to talk about that, but here's what I want to talk about in our time left. 
I want to give you the twofold strategy Jesus gave us to engage the culture. The twofold strategy Jesus gave us to change the world. Here it is. Write it down if you're taking notes. There's this element of inviting. There's this element of inviting. Notice what Jesus says. Come follow who? Audience participation part, by the way. Jesus said, come follow who? Me, right? Notice what Jesus doesn't do. Now, you have to understand, this is against everything the Jewish culture has ever known up to this point. Why? Because no rabbi would have ever said, come follow them. Think about this. Every rabbi prior to Jesus and those after Jesus would have said, come follow the Torah. Come follow the Lord. Come follow the law. They would have never said, come follow me. Notice what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't say, come follow me and let's discuss systematic theology. Nothing wrong with systematic theology. Jesus doesn't even say, let's study eschatology. He doesn't say, let's study theories of creation. Let's study the implications of the fall. Let's study justification, sanctification, and glorification. He doesn't say any of that. And I'm not minimizing any of those things, but notice what I'm saying. Jesus gives this invitation to him. It is a personal call. Now, if you didn't feel the weight of that, feel the weight of what I'm about to say. Every aspiring disciple prior to this point would have approached the rabbi and asked the rabbi if they could follow him. No one before and after Jesus ever went after a student and called them when they weren't looking for him. Jesus breaks the mold, if you will, and he goes out and finds people who may not even know the potential of what they can do to engage the culture, and he calls them to a personal relationship with him. Aren't you glad he did that with you? (laughs) I don't know about you. If you know my testimony, I wasn't looking for Jesus when he came looking for me, and neither were you probably, right? Neither were you. It's the grace of God. There's this invitation to follow him. And I want you to notice one last thing before we move on. The call is a personal call to him. Why? Because intimacy, write it down, always precedes ministry. Did you catch that? Intimacy with God always precedes ministry. What are you saying, Robbie? I'm saying this. Who we are in Christ trumps what we will ever do for Christ. See, ministry is received, not achieved. And what Jesus says is, I want you guys to come to me. And then when you come to me, you have this wonderful invitation that you can give to other people. See, the solution to the problems we face in our culture, don't miss this, is not through fixing it with an election. We're not going to fix this culture with greater sanctions on personal email accounts, right? I'm not going to fix this culture with catchy slogans on cheap hats. I'm just saying. I mean, think about it. Is anybody with me? We're not going to change this culture with higher walls. We're not going to change this culture with stricter borders. We're not going to change this culture with a better military. We're not going to change this culture with court decisions or Supreme Court justices. We're going to change the culture the same way Jesus changed the culture. And that's what an invitation to follow him. Friends, don't miss this. Don't miss this. We will never affect the culture publicly until we've been transformed by the gospel privately. Do you believe that? 
We will never change out there until God has changed us in here. And so that's why Jesus says, come follow me. And then after he calls them to himself through intimacy, then he gives them a ministry. And notice what he does here. He not only invites them to, uh, to, to follow him, but he gives them this mission, which is investing. So we have this inviting to Jesus, but then we have this investing in others. Jesus says, come follow me, and I'll make you to become fishers of men. Now, what is Jesus doing here? I love this. He is planting within their hearts and minds this seed of replication. Here's what he says. I know you thought the Christian life was about you, but it's not. Actually, I want you guys to know from the beginning that you're going to be giving this message away. And so here's what I want you to understand. The gospel came to them because it was heading to someone else. Let me bring it close to home. The gospel came to you because it was heading to someone else. And do you know everybody in here is either running with passion and handing off the baton to the next generation through investment and discipleship or we're fumbling the handoff, right? Let me speak to the ministry leaders for just a moment. And I just speak to you with great humility because I've learned this the hard way. I'm paid a lot of the dumb tax for you. So let me share with you something I learned. It was the greatest aha moment of my personal ministry. I was pastoring uh, in Chattanooga, Tennessee many years ago. And uh, I got to that church as a young new pastor. And I caught myself falling into what I call escalator evangelism. Now, you've heard of this. You may even do this. And We've all probably been there before. And that is, we wanted to get as many people into the church doors as possible, right? To grow the church as wide as we could. And this is how we did it. We said, you come to church on Sunday, and then after you come as a guest, we want you to bring your friend. And then when you bring your friend, now we wouldn't say this publicly, but we would think this privately, we overlook you to get to him. And then we want you now to come bring your friend to church so that we can overlook you and get to him. Pack a few Friday, bring a friend Wednesday. I mean, we we do that at times. And there's nothing wrong with that, bringing people to church. But what I realize is this. When you bring people into an environment of evangelism, where you have no process for spiritual growth, what happens is they go out the back door as fast as they come in the front door. I know this doesn't happen in your church. But I've heard it happening in some churches, right? That's a joke, right? It happens in all of our churches. And here's what the Lord gripped my heart about years ago. God really spoke to my heart, and and I really impressed upon me to think about this. He, He spoke to me, Robbie, you focus on the depth of your people, and I will grow the breath of your ministry. And that's a radically different mindset because we live in a day and age where where people are saying, you grow the breath of the ministry and let people worry about the depth of themselves. That's not what Jesus did. See, Jesus focused on the depth of his disciples, and when he focused on the depth of his disciples, the breadth of his ministry expanded. Now, I mean, let me bring it close to home. Think about this. If you had a newborn child, an infant, and you visit a church for the first time, it's your first time at church, and you walk into the church, and uh, you're about to drop your four-week-old child off, and the nursery workers say, hey, we're glad you're here, but we're understaffed today, but that's not a problem. Take your child. Just put it in the nursery door and open the door and put the child in the room by itself. She'll be fine. Would you ever take your four-week-old child, place the child down, and as you're walking out, take a bottle and say, hey, feed yourself. We'll be back in an hour and a half. Would you ever do that? You, You never do that. We do it every week. 
We call it the church. Right? I mean, think about it. Newborn, believers in Christ, born-again babes, they walk the aisle, they sign a card, they talk after, they are brand new believers in Christ, and here's what we do. We, we pat them on the back, we say, suck it up, we'll see you next week. And we wonder why the church is in the state it's in today. Brother Pastor, listen to me. When we stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and he tries to determine the effectiveness or attempts to determine the effectiveness of our ministry, I'm convinced that he's not going to determine it by counting the number of Christians who belong. He's going to weigh them. He's going to weigh them. See, if we want to engage the culture, we have to start with the people who are already a part of the culture. And I really believe the reason we're not seeing more believers engage the culture is because they're drawing from an empty well. There's nothing there to draw from. And they will go out and share their faith. They will go out from time to time and stand up for what's right. But over time, they will not consistently do it. Why? Because they have never been equipped to do the work of ministry. If you get nothing else, get this before I close. One minor tweak to your ministry will make a big difference. Here it is. Let us stop thinking about baptism as the finish line. And let's start thinking about it as the starting line. See, we need to move, guys. Listen, ladies, we need to move from this decisionistic culture. And we need to create a discipleistic culture. And our people are dying for that. See, by us not as leaders equipping our people to do the work of ministry, we are paralyzing and crippling them from the God-given talents and abilities that God has blessed them with. So let me leave you with this. What's the answer to engaging the culture? I believe it's staring on us every day we get up to lead. It's the vast amount of undiscipled men and women who occupy the padded seats in the pews of our churches. Let us do something about it. Amen? Father, we thank you that you did not leave us on our own to figure this out for ourselves. You gave us a message that is unstoppable. You gave us a method to do it, and you modeled a process by which people grow. And help us, God, to do one thing if we do nothing else. And that is that we would make your final words our first work. And God, we know that the only thing you have authorized us to do is to make disciples. You said all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go make disciples. And so, God, let us be about the business of the business you are about. For your glory and your namesake, we ask it in the only name we know how. And that is the strong and powerful name of Jesus Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Thank you for joining us on the ERLC podcast. To subscribe to the podcast and find more information about cultural engagement and discipleship, visit ERLC.com.